Welcome, everybody, to episode 32 of Generation Jihad. I'm Tom Jocelyn, and I'm here again this week with my longtime colleague, Bill Rojo. Bill, say hi to the audience. Hi, everyone. We are senior fellows at the Foundation for Defense of Democracies, and we've edited FDD's Long War Journal for a long time now. Um, you know, obviously, there's a lot going on inside our country, the U.S., as we record this. Um, actually, this recording was a little bit delayed because we're not really sure what to talk about. There's a lot to talk about, but you know, look, we're Americans, and you, it's it's hard to avoid a conversation about what's happening domestically right now inside the U.S. after a contentious election and. Uh, with one side disputing the uh, purported election results. And we're not going to get into all that. Of course, you know, that's not us. And, you know, it, it sort of, I think, paved the way for us to to add a comment here before we get rolling, which is that, you know, even though our, our, this podcast and our work is, is, is focused on jihadism and terrorist threats, obviously, we always recognize there's a lot more going on. And, and you know, at no point in time should Americans think that anything we're talking about is their primary concern. We've never said that and wouldn't argue that. And obviously, there's a lot more to worry about these days than the issues that we're discussing. Um, however, you know, the issues we're discussing are important and they matter to a lot of people. Uh, right now, they matter to a lot of people elsewhere around the world. We think that's important. Uh, we don't think that it just just because, uh, you know, the terrorist threat inside the U.S. right now, statistically speaking, is not, not very high chance of you being affected by a terrorist attack inside the U.S. at the moment. We don't think that that means that um, terrorism in a lot of different hotspots around the globe should be ignored. Um, in fact, you know, one of the things we've learned throughout time is that threats over there do sometimes manifest themselves over here. That was a finding of the 9-11 Commission and uh, something we've been able you can document in numerous different ways. But none of that means that we're trying to inflate the terrorist threat or anything like that. Of course not. Um, you know, only I think ideologues would sort of argue that. Um, but it's there are a lot going on that's worth discussing. And it's interesting watching this election right now in which both sides sort of lamented the America's role in the so-called endless wars, which is something Bill and I have discussed in previous episodes. We now have a situation in which, um, you know, a presumptive Biden administration inherits a a number of low intensity conflicts that are going on everywhere from Africa to Afghanistan. Some of what we're going to talk about today is going to be redundant. You're going to hear, you know, you're going to hear Bill and I, we're going to repeat ourselves uh, in some ways. Um, I'm going to repeat myself. I know that, Bill. Um, I know I will as well, Tom. Yeah. Well, you know, it is what it is. It's sort of the nature of the beast. And I think, you know, framing this from perspective of what's going on with a perspective uh, Biden administration, how they're going to inherit things, I think is important to at least talk about. Um, Then you also have um, the State Department uh, recently delisted um, this Uyghur jihadist group, um, formerly known as the Eastern Turkestan Islamic Movement and an alias of as the Turkestan Islamic Party. We're going to get into what that delisting means and doesn't mean. I did some investigation there. I called the State Department and talked to them. I had a phone call with uh, some officials there. So we're going to talk about that a little bit because I'm sure that's going to feed some of the disinformation about that group. Right, Bill? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm yeah, just, gonna, I can see it already. It's already we're going to have some we're going to have some it's going to it's going to feed the disconnect the dots crowd. If you heard this podcast in the in the past, you know, we've talked about the disconnect the dots paradigm for, under, for understanding Al Qaeda. And there's been a whole, whole disconnect the dots story around the Turkestan Islamic Party. But we'll, we'll talk about that. Um, but, you know, just sort of before we get rolling on those issues, Bill, you know, you and I are having a chuckle about this or sort of poking fun at ourselves because and again, we're, I'm going to break my rule and talk a little bit about domestic politics here. Um, America's former mayor, Mayor Giuliani, who was the Republican frontrunner for a time for the 2008 presidential campaign, um, has sort of taken center stage in Trump world uh, in recent days once again, you know, challenging the results of the 2020 presidential election. And a, a humorous note for our listeners that you may some of you may already know, probably do already know, is that actually Bill and I both advised uh, Mayor Giuliani's 2008 presidential campaign. I was a senior counterterrorism advisor, in fact. Um, I still have that on my resume and on my in my biography. But now it's more of a joke than a point of pride, I would say. Right, Bill? Yeah. Looking at all this. I yeah. mean, it's, or, Tom, I may have been an advisor, um, but you were the senior advisor. So I'm going to say oh, that thanks. You, and you brought me in on that, Tom. So I'm going to hold yeah, that let me, one let me get my you. Let me get the knife out of my back on that one. <laughs> uh, 
So, yeah, I mean, you know, obviously, I think the last time I talked to him was about, and we're sitting here in 2020, it was more than 12 years ago, you know? So, I mean, I haven't talked to him since then. And I obviously, I have nothing to do with this charade that you're witnessing here. This is a, a farce. He put out a video challenging, you know, claiming all these fraudulent results, and he had like an ad for cigars in the middle of the video. Did you see this thing? I actually I, tweeted it out. I actually didn't. Tom, I, I got to tell you, I just tuned it all out. Uh, for sanity's sake, I just can't watch anything related to this election. Yeah, good for you. I wish yeah. I wish I had been able to do that. Yeah. Um, There's not you know, a pile I, of sand deep enough to bury my head in, but I'm working on it. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, probably that's that's probably true. I mean, I've been unfortunately watching this stuff. I saw the whole, you know, uh, you know, sort of comedy show that they had at the Four Seasons Landscaping Company. I don't know if you saw this, where you know that they thought they were going to be at the Four Seasons Hotel in Philadelphia and instead booked a press conference at the Four Seasons Landscaping Company. I mean, it's just. <laughs> No, Tom, I, I swear I'm ignorant to all of this and I'm I'm yeah. much a better person for it. My sanity yeah. is I'm, I'm is watching intact. this whole thing going, what in the, yeah. you know, what what is this? This is just totally nuts. But, you know, I just think it speaks to, you know, when I was watching that, I was just thinking about how times change really and how long we've been doing this. I mean, you know, to think that this sort of clown show that Giuliani's putting on um, would be where he ended up in 2020, back in 2007, 2008 is really quite a quite a fall you know um from from where he was and and what he was doing i mean obviously he was a unifying figure after 9-11 that's where he got the sort of moniker of america's mayor um that's where i was initially drawn to his leadership although i've never really drawn to any leader as you know me i'm very independent minded i just sort of will side with somebody if i agree with them or not agree with them and and i won't side with them if i don't um but i thought you know he he appeared to be an effective leader obviously after 9-11 there was a lot a lot of merit in what he was doing and now just to watch this and watch what he's doing it's just i don't know it's just disgraceful yeah it's a testament to that uh, some people if they stay in the public view um for too long um their worst tendencies will come out and i think that's what happened to to mayor giuliani it's a shame um you know that he's fallen so far now part of our audience is probably going to you know go along with the idea that there was massive fraud in the 2020 presidential campaign. And, you know, so they probably take exception to us criticizing Giuliani. I don't really care, folks. Uh, I, you know, if you're going to claim massive fraud, then prove it. Um, I'm, I'm always open to evidence on any issue, of course, but I haven't seen any evidence along those lines. And what I see Mayor Giuliani doing, unfortunately, is not providing a lot of evidence. It's, uh, you know, sort of more of a, a show than anything else. Um, but, you know, I, one other thing on this before we move on. Um, you know, we've poked fun. I poked fun in my own writings publicly about our role with Giuliani. I did a newsletter earlier this year in which I said, you know, once upon a time I was senior counterterrorism advisor and, you know, please don't hold that against me. Uh, you know, in 2016, I did an interview with Reuters. I think it was with Mark Hosenball at Reuters, in which I distanced myself very clearly at the time from him too. Um, but it's just, none of that really matters, obviously. I don't think anybody really cares. I mean, I, I don't really care, to be honest with you, other than just to sort of note that how different the world has changed since in that time, those 12 years. I mean, it's just remarkable to see from 2008 today how the politi- political turmoil can just upset the whole apple cart. Yeah, it really is stunning. I mean, I, the, the longer I go in life, the less I want to pay attention to politics. It's just, it's, I would say over the last, what, 10 years, it's just degraded into a clown show. It, this didn't start with Trump. It started before then, but um, it just seems every cycle seems to get worse and worse. And my faith in American politics it, it weakens uh, every election cycle. Well, and that that's another cheery note for you yeah. folks out there. And Generation John, I, I've told you all the time, you know, this is not where you turn to happy for happy talk. And <laughs> now we're adding a whole other element into it, which, you know, breaking our own unwritten rule about all this. But, you know, one other thing I'll say, one of uh completely unrelated thing before we move on, which is we got an email from a, uh, a listener uh, named Don. I won't share his last name because I didn't ask him to, but Don was asking, you know, hey, you know, guys, where's the merch? You guys promised merchandise. And that kicked me in the butt to bring that up on our production call today, Bill. So Bill and for our producer, uh, Danielle Kleiman, who's silently listening in, and hopefully she'll be chiming in in the future. Uh, we talked today about getting the merchandise up and running for you guys on the site, and Don's going to get some free stuff uh, courtesy of me for kicking me in the butt over that and getting me going on it, and I appreciate that. Uh, so we're going to do that soon, right, Bill? We're going to get that absolutely. going. This is, just, this is just, again, another example of our absolutely horrific self-promotion, right? Yeah, folks, it's just um, it's it's a amazing that we actually launched the podcast, uh, let alone um uh, you know, can can do it weekly. Hey, hey, Tom, if I may say just one more thing about the, um, you know, the, I know we talk in the politics there a little bit. Um, 
I, you know, I've watched foreign policy degrade over, you know, and how our execution of it and how it's handled, you know, politically, they go hand in hand. And, and, and I think that's, you know, when I see how we handle foreign policy and national security threats and how we handle our politics, uh, it, they've degraded together over time. And, and I think that's really what provides, you know, gives me the pessimism that I have. But I do tend to be hopeful and maybe one day we can sort all this stuff out and, you know, be one happy America again. Uh, it just looks it's it's grim right now. But, uh, you know, maybe we get our wits about us. We could only hope. Well, you know, I mean, it's, it raises an interesting point we just did there because it's true that foreign policy is tied into domestic politics and foreign policy doesn't matter until it matters, right? Until right. it becomes something that is sort of front and center for all of us. And that's sort of how we view all the issues we cover is that, yeah, there's a, statistically speaking, there's a lot of other stuff that you're, you're going to be affected by other than this. I mean, we're living in the era of a pandemic. You have rancorous domestic politics. I mean, you got all sorts of stuff going on. We get it, folks. Um, but you know, you have to sort of try and keep clear-eyed about everything else that's going on. And, you know, I was just thinking about this. This is part of when we talk about foreign policy, part of what I've been trying to struggle for um, or try and cut through anyway is you and I have talked about this sort of offline quite a few times, or at least not in the context of the podcast, of just taking a less ideological view of foreign policy. I mean, so much of the foreign policy discourse is sort of predicated on people have their ideological predispositions and, you know, they basically just sort of have their own reflexive opinions based on those dispositions. So, you know, it's something I want. I had a little mini rant in a previous podcast about sort of naive interventionism versus ignorant isolationism. And that's sort of those are caricatures, but uh, admittedly so. And I'm not naming anybody in either one of those, although I do think I could probably identify some people in both <laughs> camps, uh, you know. Uh, but, uh, you know, the point is, is that, you know, you, you see a lot of the stuff. I mean, when we talk about foreign policy here, we're about to talk about what was formerly known as the global war on terror, these low intensity conflicts. You know, for us, from our perspective, you know, I mean, America's going to decide what they're going to decide. Washington's going to decide whatever. And, you know, it is what it is. We're going to cover the results of that. All we can really say is how we think things are going to play out in the aftermath. I mean, if you listen to this podcast and think that we're, you know, sort of unwavering in our dedication to keeping these conflicts going from the American side, then you're not listening very carefully, I would say. Uh, you know, we, we have a lot of criticisms of how these uh, wars have been handled, for sure. Um, it's just that Bill and I don't find um, the jihadist success in these different places, should they achieve victory in different ways, to be a great outcome for America or for our allies. And that's where we sort of draw a difference between ourselves and a lot of other people, I think, basically at this point, sort of the unstated assumption, for example, is who cares if Kabul falls to the Taliban and their Al-Qaeda allies? Who cares if Mogadishu falls? Who cares if ISIS comes back? Who cares if you know Al-Qaeda and its allies or ISIS establishes an emirate in West Africa? And my view of all that is, okay, make that argument explicit, right? If that's really what you think, you don't care if that happens, then make that argument explicit. But don't claim that it's just about America or America's presence in these places, um, frame it entirely around those is that issue bucket, around that sort of lens, that myopia that says it's all about whether or not America is in a place or not. Right, Bill? Yeah, I mean, yeah. That's sort of where we're coming from. Yeah, that, that's absolutely correct. I mean, you know, and, and, and even worse in some cases, let's not spin the arguments uh, to say, well, we should disengage because Al-Qaeda is no longer relevant in Afghanistan or here or there. And that's what's happening. And that's that's the politicization of intelligence and the and of these issues that really bothers you and me. Again, you want to get out of Afghanistan? It's hard for me to argue against doing it, especially given how poorly we've executed it. But let's be clear eyed about what we're if we're going to make decisions to disengage. Let's be clear eyed, clear eyed about it. Let's not pretend that there aren't potential problems down the road. We know that there the likelihood, should I say, is that there will be potential problems. Uh, just one, you know, Al Qaeda. Look at Al Qaeda before versus after nine eleven. Look what Al Qaeda did just having a primary base in Afghanistan, and that brought us nine eleven. I don't know why I shouldn't think that Al-Qaeda having more bases, more places to operate, and then having ISIS on the other side should result in greater security for the American public. But, you know, go ahead and argue against me. The problem is these days we can't argue. We can't have that discussion. Everything is screamed down. You're a warmonger. You just want to fight endless wars, et cetera, et cetera. I say just take ownership of your positions. I'll take ownership of mine, but uh, people don't want to seem to take ownership of theirs. Well, you know, here's the thing when it comes to politicization of it and what you're talking about. I mean, we recently have, you know, as, as we went to record this, 
President Trump announced you know a turnover at the Defense Department again. So we have yet another in presumably the closing months of the Trump administration, although his supporters would dispute that. Um, we have yet another Secretary of Defense. In this case, you know Mark Esper is ousted, and in his place is the and it was put the NCTC Director Christopher Miller. Um, is now the new acting Secretary of Defense. Now, Christopher Miller, if you remember this podcast, he wrote an op-ed on September 10th of last year, of this year, I'm sorry, uh, September 10th of this year, <laughs> last year. It's all blurry now, Bill. It really uh, is. September, Could have been last decade for all we know. Yeah, it, actually, it's the same themes, right? So right. it's the same, repeating ourselves. But September 10th of um, this year, basically arguing, you know, it sort of was a mishmash, an illogical sort of set of arguments trying to basically say the end is near for the fight against Al-Qaeda. And in that, he we critique, as we critiqued him in writing and on the podcast, he claimed that Zawahiri was Al-Qaeda's sole ideological leader, sole remaining ideological leader. That's just demonstrably false, right? I mean, whatever you want to do in Afghanistan or anywhere else, that's not true, right? I mean, and so then the Afghans go ahead and kill Al-Qaeda's media chief, Hassan Abdul-Ruf, uh, and Hassan al-Daruf was killed in the Taliban-controlled village. And Christopher Miller comes out and says this is, uh, you know, a major success and another sign that they're on their back heels and strategic successes. You know, this is a major setback for the group. Wait a minute. You know, you just told us that al-Qaeda only had one senior remaining leader left. And now you're trumping the death of another senior leader as a major setback for the group. I mean, this is just... Come on, this is nonsense. And yet this guy is now Secretary of Defense, you know? And you know, Tom, uh, what, yeah, exactly. And, and and what even bothers me about that is the media seems to be so uncurious about this that they don't, you know, they're so, I don't know, invested in leaving Afghanistan that they won't even question that. Why are you and I the only two people asking the question of- Well, I mean, it's just resi- an obvious, it's just a blatant sort of uh, obvious error on his part, you know? Right. And so, I mean, the, the point is, is that, Again, you can be for getting out of Afghanistan. Believe me, you know, believe me, you know, uh, we understand that, you know, uh, we're sort of sick of the withdrawal drama, as Bill calls it. Right. Uh, You know, but uh, it doesn't mean you should be able you should be in the business of saying things that are blatantly untrue, factually, just clearly untrue. Right. Just false. And this was a false statement. And there were a number of false statements in that op-ed. Um, and it didn't matter, right? That's the point. Yeah. We're living in. This is sort of the thing you and I talk about now is that you can get something totally wrong like that. You can whiff. And it just doesn't matter anymore, yeah. right? There's no accountability. I mean, I, you know, look, I try and hold myself accountable when I get something wrong. I know you do, Bill. Um, but there doesn't seem to be a heck of a lot of accountability out there. And everything is now a tribal sort of you know, conflict in which doesn't really matter if you're right or wrong, it just matters which side you're on. And that that's, I don't know, that's depressing to me. Um, so anyway, so Christopher Miller is now the acting secretary of defense. Um, I believe me, folks, we're going to transition to the Biden stuff here in a second. And, you know, one of the theories put out is why was Esper cashiered and some of his acting or some of his undersecretaries cashiered or it looks like they're going to be fired is there's this idea that maybe they were putting up resistance to a withdrawal from Afghanistan. Um, what, what I find weird about that, uh, maybe that's true. And certainly we don't know one way or another. It could be true. What's weird about that is the withdrawal is intended to be completed by April or May of 2021. So just a few months, several months you know, ahead of here. And that's the agreement that President Trump and Secretary of State Mike Pompeo agreed to with the Taliban was the complete withdrawal by then. And it seems if this report is true, and we're not saying it is, that you know, basically Trump just wants out you know, this year now before you know, January then they're not even living up to, they're not even maintaining that withdrawal timeline. It just shows that basically um, that it's another example of why that deal was a farce. They didn't make the Taliban do anything. The Taliban didn't do anything to hold up its end of any any sort of bargain. And yet we were going to get out anyway, which just validates the critique that Bill and I yeah. have had all along. That's exactly, was, Tom. Yeah, if, right. If you're, if, if so, again, in this in this but for a world here where Esper is cashiered because, and Jake Tapper of CNN and some others are reporting this, in which, you know, basically, you know, Trump wants out of Afghanistan sooner. Okay, well then why the heck did you go through with all these talks with the Taliban and sign this this ridiculous deal? You know, it doesn't make any sense. It it didn't it didn't accomplish anything other than empowering and legitimizing the Taliban. And now we're we're treading old turf, I know, we're tilling old ground. But this is all part of the current story, folks. This is all part of the current sort of background on, on what's going on. And so it's it keeps coming up. And Tom, it, it's just complete evidence of what we've suspected all along is that deal was just window dressing. We've stated publicly the deal's window dressing for withdrawal. It's to give the decent interval. It's to allow the U.S. to get an honorable, so-called honorable exit from Afghanistan. I mean, if he pulls out before the timeline that they said in that deal, to me, it's just 
evidence that with the Taliban not doing well, they, anything right, to with justify the Taliban, it, yeah, do, right. and do, actually doing everything basically they could to not justify it. Right? I mean, they've unleashed a series of suicide bombers. They're on the offensive throughout much of the country, forcing human rights crisis again in southern Afghanistan. I mean, you know, this all this adds up to really servile diplomacy. I mean, lame diplomacy. I mean, this is you know. I, I think going forward, America needs much stronger diplomacy. Absolutely, you know this is this is not a case of where we don't think we're against diplomacy, but there's clear-eyed, smart, tough-minded diplomacy, and then there's this nonsense, which was just apparently surrender of diplomacy yeah. is basically Sub- submission. What it is. In Doha. Yeah, submission. Yeah. Exactly. Submission diplomacy is what yeah. people seem to like, or 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 face-saving diplomacy. Absolutely bizarre. So uh, so anyway, so Biden and so vice former Vice President Biden. Um, Presumably, will inherit inherit all this. Inherit this. Now, it's interesting. Let's start with Afghanistan. I, mean, I hate keeping coming back to Afghanistan, but we'll start there and we'll work our way out. Let's work through this a little bit. So, it's interesting. So, if President Trump doesn't complete a withdrawal before January or for inauguration day, um, and Vice President Biden becomes President Biden, then he inherits the. You know, I guess it's down to several thousand troops in Afghanistan. Less than five thousand is what Esper was promising before he was cashiered. So it's down to several thousand, low thousands of troops. You know, small, very small footprint. But you have this deal in which the U.S. has promised to get out by April, May of 2021. So if if Biden decides that he wants to keep some small force in Afghanistan, which some people are howling about, even as we say that. But if he decides he wants to keep some small force in Afghanistan, he'd have to get out of the deal with the Taliban or basically say the Taliban didn't uphold its end of the deal. Now, that's easy to do. I mean, unless you're into, into complete servility, it's easy to say the Taliban didn't upheld their end of the deal. They didn't do, any, they didn't do anything with respect to al-Qaeda, didn't even, didn't even tell the truth about al-Qaeda's presence in Afghanistan. They're still lying about it, haven't taken responsibility for anything, and they're on the offensive throughout the country. I mean, this is sort of ludicrous. So it's easy if Biden wanted to do that, he could say, his staff could say, now I don't know that they want to. I'm just saying if, if he wanted to, he has floated the idea Biden has of keeping a, a counterterrorism force in Afghanistan. But I, even that I think is going to run into problems. What do you think, Bill? Yeah, absolutely. Look, and so just so people understand, I believe the number came out that there's about 4,000 plus troops in Afghanistan, if you can believe any of the recent reports. And what I, a report that I saw in the last month, some um, I, I can't remember who it was, but a general had said about 1,500 troops are needed just to secure the U.S. Embassy. And that would include the airport in Kabul as well, because you'd need to exit. So, um, you know, what are you're going to basically have 2,000 troops plus to what you'll need a base for them, right? So you're going to need base security. You're going to need... It, what's the size of this small counterterrorism force that we're going to hear? I mean, the Taliban is winning now. What do we, th- you know, if if we're going to stop, you know, if this count, what's the purpose of this counterterrorism force if the Taliban wins and Al Qaeda c- continues to be allied with the Taliban? And so, you know, I you have to question the questions we have to. There all the wrong questions are being asked here. This is what bothers me about this entire discussion about how many troops are in Afghanistan. We're not worried about what is the mission we want to complete, right? Do we want to stop a Taliban takeover? Well, if you want to stop Al Qaeda from regaining strength in Afghanistan, then you better stop the Taliban from because, as we just seen, senior Al Qaeda leaders are embedded with the Taliban. And we know that other Al Qaeda fighters or all operatives are embedded with the Taliban. And you have the ISIS wing, which is also right. ISIS group, which is opposed to the Taliban, but there's that sort of- Right. I mean, yeah, I haven't even gotten this, to ISIS. Yeah. So how are yeah. you going to fight them with less resources than we have in Afghanistan today and be successful? But if, if you want to stop just the Al Qaeda side, you need to um you need to be taken on the Taliban but that's not but that nobody wants to do that so what's the whole point of having a counterterrorism force other than and and not only that as you said Tom the Taliban aren't going to accept this the Taliban has said no I mean they could say we broke the deal even though they've yeah. done nothing to uphold their end but there's they've done zero zip okay they they had inter-afghan talks in Doha that's it yeah uh, you know and they and they and you know they and they're I mean, sitting I guess on I, that I guess I should basically say they didn't attack American forces as we retreated to, as America drew down. Okay, that's a good thing from the U.S. soldiers' perspective, obviously, because we haven't suffered any casualties. Good, um, but that w- you don't need all this whole charade, this whole big talks and deal to get that. You know, I mean, basically, this all the stuff, all the jargon, all the nonsense, all the diplo speak we heard from Pompeo and Zalmay Kalozad. None of that was germane. None of that held. It was all just basically a withdrawal deal, as we said from the beginning. And you could have just called it that. You could have just said that instead of claiming it was a peace agreement because it never was a peace agreement. Um, 
But you know, but the point is, is that what is the point here of all this? If 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 you're not going to have a mission focused sort of uh, presence, it's all about the American presence. It's only about whether or not America is somewhere or not, right? Yep. That's that's what that that's what that troop thing comes down to, right? Is whether or not America is there. It has nothing to do with what the jihadis are doing or what the threat is. And look, it's complicated. Like I think you know, I think if the U.S. does complete the withdrawal sometime in the coming months, as as was planned under Trump. Um, you know, there are other ways to mitigate a 9-11 style threat. You know, I definitely think that. I do think that this will be a, a boon, however, for global jihadism and the, the threat of terrorism will rise uh, certainly throughout the region and globally, I think, as well. Um, uh, so, you know, there, I wouldn't be surprised if anything emanated from that region. Uh, but um, but the point is, is that none of this is, is framed around what the U.S. mission should be at this point. And there's all sorts of intellectual confusion with the Taliban. You know, you just said, well, if you don't want to fight Al Qaeda, you're going to have to contain the Taliban, too. Well, there's a whole disconnect. We know I'm not yeah. relitigating this. There's a whole disconnect the dots paradigm on that thing. You know, where you get, I mean, I even see these guys on Twitter where they basically anytime you point to any evidence of Taliban, Al Qaeda, they run off on all sorts of ad hoc exculpatory arguments trying to play disconnect the dots. I'm kind of sick of that whole thing. Um, you know, it's, it sort of makes you ask you, you have to ask yourself, you know, why are you so eager to jump to the Taliban's defense? You know, what's up with you? You know, uh, in any event. Uh, so anyway, so that's that's Afghanistan. You know, basically, you know, either Trump completes the withdrawal here in the next couple months um, or, um, you know, and of course, I'm not entertaining the idea that he gets a, a, another term here in this analysis um, or Biden inherits it and has to complete the withdrawal himself, uh, you know, which he he, he might do. Or if he decides to keep a small presence in place, which Bill outlined the problems with that, he then have to basically explain why the Taliban didn't uphold its end of the deal, right? So that's the plain talk on Afghanistan. But it's not just Afghanistan. So you have, um, there's been a lot of talk in DOD circles and elsewhere about uh, withdrawing troops from Africa. You know, I don't know. I don't really have a good sense of what Biden would do in Africa. Do you? Do you know what he would do? Yeah. You, know. you know, I don't, but... My understanding, you know, look, I think his policies align and when it comes to foreign policy uh, closely with with President Obama's policies, where my inclination is his advisors are going to um, suggest uh, drawing down or withdrawing across the board as best possible with the least amount of political problems. If there's one place you could do it. I, you know, people, I get this question a lot, Tom, like, hey, how come nobody cares what's happening in Somalia? No one in the U.S. government cares about, you know, Nigeria or this country. And I have a thing, the, I have a short saying, and it's a little vulgar, but the answer is, is in U.S. policy circles, other than some in caring individuals, our policy on Africa is F Africa. No one gives a crap about Africa. Yeah, which is it's, disgusting, right? It is disgusting. And it's, yeah. it's so it's to me, it's the easiest place if you want to disengage. You can just do it and people won't look. The only time people cared about Africa that I could think of um, is what? When you had four American troops killed in Niger fighting um, the Islamic State. And then it became a big political issue. And how come, you know, you, I don't want to rehash all of that. That's the only time people care. Is an American killed or are they kidnapped? Otherwise, there's no strategic importance to Africa whatsoever. So, you know, that's given, what they think anyway. I well, mean, yeah, you know, yeah, that's the mindset. That's the, I don't argue, agree that's the with argument. That. That's yeah. the argument. Yeah, right. Yeah, my my, you know, my philosophy is is all ground is strategic. I mean, you have to decide where you're going to commit the most resources. I get that, but you you especially the jihadists, you see one area and they just come in. And they're like roaches. They just ain't leaving. And well, I guess, uh, but on Africa, here's the other point about all this, right? We're talking about according to press reports, it's like several thousand troops against smaller deployment. So. This whole conversation about what Biden would do is taking place in the context in which the U.S. has already substantively drawn down the vast majority of its forces from the, the what do we call the nine the post nine eleven wars, right? Um, we're not at the hundred thousand plus, you know, hundred fifty thousand troop range across all these theaters. Not even close, you know. It's 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 a lot smaller, and I think that's really the question. I think in all this is. Where would a Biden administration decide a small remaining U.S. military footprint is worthwhile on a cost-benefit analysis? You know, and that's really the issue here. You know, and and I think that the most difficult terrain to do that in is in Afghanistan, given the threat of the insurgency, as we just outlined. Where you know, going to even smaller, as you pointed out, Bill, it has its own problems. But then the question is, do you, you know, in Africa, if, if people did all of a sudden there was a drumbeat of get out of Africa, you know, get all that. So you're pulling 5,000, 6,000, 7,000. I don't know what the exact number is right now. 
um, you know, troops under AFRICOM out where they're containing Shabab and containing, uh, you know, Al Qaeda in, in West Africa and ISIS and taking out leaders here and there. This is not a big counterinsurgency effort that the U.S. is running. They're basically working with local allies and not sustaining them. I mean, there's some casualties on occasion, sure, and that's awful, but not sustaining a large number of casualties. I guess the question is, you know, that is that model sustainable going forward or not, right? Yeah. So, Tom, and, the, and then Pol- politically speaking, not right. operationally, politically speaking. Flip you know? on the flip side, the F Africa model allow, could allow the Biden administration, an upcoming presumptive Biden administration, to just leave them because, again, no one's really paying attention until something goes wrong. And the mission there, they're not on the front lines. They're more of an advisory and training and intelligence. And, you know, occasionally they're, they're out. Uh, um, uh, as advisors, military and engaged in combat, but it's not, you know, there's just not a lot of visibility to the mission. So if the, if the, if the next administration is, you know, if, if no one's given them heat about having deployments in Africa, which pretty much no one does, then you could just let things ride as is. That's the other thing that the, the F Africa strat, um, uh, worldview allows you to either get away with things or to ignore things, depending on how you want to work it. Or get away from them. Yeah. Know, get away right. from things or more things. Yeah. I mean, it's sort of because they haven't gotten, you know, Afghanistan gets the attention because of the longevity of America's presence there. And that's, some, that's I mean, some of the people I see on Twitter, that's all they know, right? Is that we've been yeah. there 19 yeah. years. I mean, that's the like, most common th- fact, th- known fact yeah, about Afghanistan. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks. I don't need a calendar. You know, I know what year it is. You know, I mean, when I see people sort of snarkily say that, you know, yeah, just subtract uh, one and you'll get the years. That's it's really easy. I mean, come on, guys, you know, uh, but, um, you know, and, and I would argue that the U.S. has had seven out of 10 toes out most of that time, uh, you know, which is one of the which is one of the reasons why this is all like this. Uh, but in any event, um, and that's not correctable now. Um, so we're going forward here, too. So let's talk. So we got Africa. And you can look at so Yemen, you have the controversial U.S. support for the Saudi camp, campaign against the Houthis. Um yeah, that Biden, I think, has pledged to, to end. He pledged uh, to end it. Yes, that was in right. his official policy statement. I would expect him to follow through on that. That's a part right. of the whole anti-Saudi, which, by the way, you're not going to find a friend in the Saudis here. But, you know, you also but not going to find a friend of the Houthis either. Yeah, right? Or so. the, right. Exactly. I mean, this isn't, yeah. you know, we're not talking about perfect actors. And on they're, they're the ones that precipitate the crisis. So, yeah, I agree. I mean, again, it's sort of it, again, it's framed all from the Saudi perspective. And yeah, there's plenty to criticize. Absolutely. Uh, right. Um, but um, it's it's not like they're the only part of the equation. But there's also the AQAP presence there, um, which has been an ongoing uh, concern. Um, you know, again, you know, AQAP demonstrated some some uh, level of external operations. Again, we're not blowing this out of proportion, but they did um, show some capacity to attack in Pensacola last year, for example, um, where you know that there was uh, the the attacker. We talked about this in a previous episode. Was in touch with a handler from AQAP and uh, AQP operators over a series of months. It was much more than just sort of inspiration. Um, so there's definitely that ongoing concern. And there was a drone strike to kill one of the guys who was involved with them in Yemen. I guess I, I don't know what what that looks like. I don't know enough about what the behind the scenes sort of infrastructure of the clandestine side of America's footprint looks like. The U.S. doesn't have a noteworthy military presence in Yemen. I mean, I'm sure there are small contingents, right? It's got yeah, these- just like it's some intelligence, special operations and right. links to the the, the government, um, government forces, whatever rump government forces I'd call them. I would fully expect that. Like, I, I have a feeling that the, the Biden administration in Yemen particularly would love to go to an over-horizon counterterrorism model where they can just gather some intelligence and launch some airstrikes and hope that that, keeps the problem under you know but look the reality is is in situations like that you have a greater chance of civilian casualties um something that we hear that number should always be zero we should always strive for zero don't get me wrong but thinking that the number it will always be zero in, in a war is um uh i'm not even sure what the right word is absurd but uh yeah you know so i i i think if any place yemen um given the fact that you have access by sea and you have air air um capabilities in in saudi arabia that th- that would be the perfect place for an administration to conduct a to just completely disengage i think it would be a mistake don't get me wrong but uh to mis- disengage and go to an over horizon counterterrorism model yeah, so that's Yemen. So the, the story on Yemen is much more focused not on the U.S. presence because it doesn't have much, but on the support for the Saudi campaign and the other stuff is sort of not really uh, factored in, I guess, in the equation. 
Now you have um, in Iraq and Syria, you have this small contingent in Iraq of several thousand. I think it's several, it's several thousand, right? Yeah, it's a couple thousand. I think it's like 1,500 or 2,000, like I think, yeah. somewhere so in that. Small, again, a small footprint. And then a few hundred in Syria, I guess, is what's been reported. Um, of course, people get, um, you know, this is where this is where you know that there it's an ideological argument is when somebody says that a few hundred they treat a few hundred American troops in Syria as almost as an existential crisis. You know when they talk about it, I mean it doesn't make an any occupation, sense, but, right? Yeah, or some other nonsense. But uh, so you have a small contingent in both those places. I think that's probably where Biden is most likely to keep some forces in all of this. I, I think that's that's probably because working with local partner forces, you know, in Syria, the SDF, which is really a front for the PKK or mostly a front for the PKK, which is a U.S. designated terrorist organization. And we're going to talk a little bit about that in a second, aren't we, Bill? Absolutely. Uh, Can't wait. Yeah. When we get in the designation process. Um, so, and, you know, you have um, also, you have uh, working with Iraqi forces, uh, also uh, militia and, you know, de facto sort of partnerships on the ground with Iranian-backed militias in Iraq, uh, but also the Kurdish forces there. So, I, you know, I think, it's probably likely that um, I shouldn't say likely. I would say I wouldn't be surprised. I guess if Biden kept some kept basically that small footprint in those two countries, um, it's sort of interesting because you know he Biden was one of those guys who was selling the withdrawal from Iraq in 2011 as a major success. You know, and of course there was never any accountability for that getting that wrong, right? Uh, you know, because that was that obviously wasn't a major success. If there's a recurring theme here, is folks, is it doesn't really matter on any of this anymore if you get anything wrong, right? Lack just, of accountability a, is rampant. It's as a matter of fact, it's the default. Unless you're yeah. of unless you're ideologically impure, you can pretty much get away with it, whatever you want being wrong. Yeah. So yeah, and on, that's on, the on, basic situation. Oh, on a reference Syria, Tom. Yeah. I, look. Uh, Biden was, you know, had a firsthand view of what happened when you call the Islamic State the JV team, you conduct the withdrawal, and then um, next thing you know, you know, a country the or an area the size of Britain in Iraq and Syria becomes a part of the Islamic State's caliphate. So I think he knows the political and the ramifications of completely ignoring in Iraq and Syria. So that could get, you get away with that in Africa. You might even be able to get away with that in Afghanistan. But in a place like in the heart of the Middle East, in Iraq and Syria, when the Islamic State takes over large chunks of terrain, um, that just can't be. That's that. You know, we all saw the coverage of that and all that and everything that generated and you know ironically enough on that one no one ever took any political heat either no i mean it's, it's a weird dynamic where basically if you you know if, if you think back to the iraq war i mean the 2003 iraq war obviously was is still controversial it still frames a lot of the conversation about all this sure stuff does. even though the, even though the calculation should be different at this point because nobody's arguing for another iraq anywhere and the consensus is that that decision was a strategic mistake and disastrous and i don't think anybody would seriously arguing against that. I mean, I guess some people do, but you know, whatever. Um, but the point is, is that, that that decision still frames everything and there's still a lot of mythology surrounding that. I don't agree with all, as I've said to you before and said on the podcast, I don't agree with all the anti-war arguments when it comes to Iraq and some of them I disagree with and still do. Um, but doesn't mean that it was a wise decision to go do that uh, at all. Um, but that, that frames everything. But it's interesting, you know, there's a lot of harsh rhetoric around that and a lot of you know heated sort of venomous sort of condemnation around that some of it justifiable um and yet when you go in the opposite direction and you just say we can end our end endless wars and just get out there's no condemnation or anything else there's, there's very light i should say you know basically from a comparative perspective it's much better for you to err on the side of just getting out of everywhere than it yeah, is getting into somewhere exactly right? exactly so Hundred percent, Tom. You nailed it. I, I don't know if that's was well said or not. Who knows? I'm getting a little tired. Welcome to my world, here. Tom. Yeah. Well. Um, so let's let's move on. I don't know. Is there anything else? Am I missing anything else on what decisions Biden's got to inherit? I, what I, else? I mean, look in, in the terrorism. You're, world, the, you're think, Mr. Drone. You're Mr. Drone. What do you know about the well, what about the drones? Yeah. So and 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 on that, then general, that's that's where look, we've seen a, a, a great reduction of, of the um, the drone strikes, and and we haven't. I mean. I think the one that probably killed Hamza bin Laden, I believe, is in Pakistan, but we've never had an announcement on that. The drone strikes in Pakistan have pretty much ended. That's a, and that doesn't mean Al Qaeda isn't there. 
how are we going to if we do there is a full pullout in Afghanistan, where does that get based out of? I mean, drones are just a tool, right? It's it's part of the CT mission. Um, it's a tool of counterterrorism to military or tool of the military as well. But, you know, we're not seeing a lot of them in Yemen. The only place that we've seen a small spike is in Somalia. And I have always suspected that's because AFRICOM was is kind of reading um, the tea leaves and figuring that there'd probably be American withdrawal from Somalia, significant, either a full withdrawal or a significant drawdown in Somalia. Not that with a couple hundred troops, it'd all be all that significant, but like the cutting the resources there. But I think, you know, look, there was a lot of, a lot of love for the drones in the early to mid 2000s because they killed a lot of senior Al Qaeda and then Islamic State leaders and other jihadist leaders. Um, but then as the, um, really uh, mid 2000s to like, yeah, I would say mid 2000s right? yeah. to yeah, mid, yeah. mid 2000s, yeah. you know, to late 2000s. Yeah. 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 Um, so mid 2000 aughts, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Um, and, the um, you know, but then you have the issue of civilian casualties, and I think you know presidents have um, have uh, shied away from taking that criticism. So the utility of the drones has decreased over time. You know, they're only as good as how they're used, and I don't think they're being used properly. I don't know. You know, the Biden administration, though, if 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 he does what I suspect, particularly in Yemen, and goes with a counterterror or sort of a over the horizon counterterrorism role, the drones are, are a perfect tool for that. They could loiter over areas over days or day or more at a time, um, gather intelligence and and strike when needed. But um, you know, I don't. I think the 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 days of a drone strike every other day in Pakistan and Somalia and Syria and Iraq. I think those days are are long gone um one of the problems too when you when you ramp up the strikes is you're admitting there's a problem um that's bigger um and i think that the the biden administration if my suspicions are correct and they want to disengage from this war these wars whatever however you want to define it then um less drone strikes and not more is the proper thing to do and of course that that would take off the table one of the um, areas, I guess, of controversy for the Obama administration that Biden lived through because, of course, it was President Obama who ramped up the drone strikes, um, you know, even as he was claiming to bring to a responsible end various conflicts. He ramped up the drone strikes, in particular in northern Pakistan, uh, you know, going after sort of al-Qaeda and al-Qaeda affiliated groups. I know that's why I called you Mr. Drone. Obviously, you covered that very carefully, what was going on there. And then some people, you know, uh, they cited your work, but Heavily relied on it, we'll just say, in doing their drone coverage. In doing their drone coverage, Um, but okay, so so that basically that would you know if if Biden doesn't go down the road, and I agreed, it's most likely he won't. That takes away that sort of area of political controversy or liability on the left. I think for him to have to worry about. Um, So then, then we're gonna have to find out. You know, I think we're gonna see. You know, we're basically thinking you're gonna see a resurgence. Not even a resurgence, just a growth, I guess, of jihadism in some of these hotspots. And that's what's basically going to happen here, regardless of whether the U.S. is there or not. Um, You're going to see some growth here going forward. And it's going to be interesting to watch, you know, how America responds to it, where you have this, you know, dominant paradigm of endless wars and just whether or not America is involved or not. Um, But, you know, the thing is, is that, you know, going forward, you know, the U.S. has not really... You know, there's there's all this rhetoric about all the senior Al Qaeda leaders that have been killed. For example, the U.S. and its allies haven't really been picking off that many Al Qaeda leaders in recent months. They have picked off the head of AQAP, Qasem Al Raimi, head of uh, the first head of AQIS, who we think was really playing another role in the kind of his death, Asim Omar, um, Drukdel in Mali. Um, you know, a couple, you know, a couple, a couple smattering of others, and those are and Hamza bin Laden, of course, which we're not really clear on when he was killed. You know, you got, and then you have obviously the Afghan took on Sam Abdul Roof recently. So you, you can put together a string of senior Al Qaeda guys who have been taken out in in over the last year or more. Um, it's important, but it's not a it's not a flurry. It's not something that it's you know we're not talking about dozens of of casualties amongst Al Qaeda senior leadership at this point. Some would argue, of course, including Christopher Miller, that there aren't dozens left to even kill, right? Uh, but you know, there are plenty of other guys we could cite out there. So I guess that that's sort of the one question I have going forward here is, yeah, it's not about large scale military footprints, but it's about three different things, actually. It's about where will the U.S. maintain, if and where will the U.S. military maintain a smaller footprint? Um, how will that affect you know high value targeting campaign? 
including going after the remaining senior leaders of both Al-Qaeda and ISIS. And then uh, how will that affect the ability to disrupt terrorist plots and plotting in the organizations? And I don't really have answers to all that stuff, but that's sort of how I'm looking at the incoming, presumably incoming Biden administration. Yeah. No, and Tom, just a little bit more detail. And, you know, you and I have always described the the droning or the targeted killing of senior leaders as necessary, but not sufficient to defeat these groups. Unfortunately, the the prevailing attitude out there is that these drone strikes are sufficient in destroying these groups. They're not. But look, you just described, you just named four senior Al-Qaeda leaders killed. They're killed across three different theaters, right? It's not like we killed three in the last yeah, and I, like, I, eight. And I guess I could add Syria too. I mean. Oh, yeah, you know, you're right. Okay, focus. So, but then you had another theater, yeah. right? Yeah, I mean, right. So yeah, then yeah, we got five theater, exactly right. No, exactly so right. Yeah. My, my yeah. point is, is this isn't like, the only way you're going to have a, a cascading effect where you can really can impact is by killing these guys off in succession quickly, where the, the the leadership is just so disorganized. That's not happening. We're basically plinking over time. And yeah, it kills a senior leader. They're forced to replace them, but they're not just, we're not killing them fast enough. And, and so less strikes is just not going to impact um, these groups uh, significantly. It's going to be less significant. Um, how long was Asim Umar presumptuously the head of AQIS before he was killed? What, four or five years? How long was Drukdal the head of AQ, um, AQIM? God, what? Right. How, 12, well, 13? 2000, yeah, 2006 Four, was yeah, when? 14 two, years? Two, I mean, there's disagreement over when AQIM becomes sure. AQIM, but it's really 2006. But, right. but, uh, but you know, before that, he was the head of GSPC, so right. he was in the game for a long, long time, you know? Um, you know, Qasem al-Ramy was a, a veteran of the, the Afghan training camps for al-Qaeda, you know, prior to 9-11. He's taken out in January, you know? So, yeah, this is this gets back to that recurring theme we have that they have, you know, and, and this is this is the open question for, we know we have a lot of people in the intelligence military world for us. You know, here's a simple question for you guys as we, before we move on to the next part of our podcast. How many al-Qaeda leaders do they have today? How many leaders does al-Qaeda have today, really? Like, what do they actually look like? We've talked about this in previous podcasts, and we haven't gotten an assessment of the U.S. government in years, right? How many people are on the management committee? What is the management committee? How does it work? How many people are on the Shura Council, right? What's the Sharia committee doing? What's the finance committee doing? What's the military committee doing? You know, what's the, you know? we know they have a security, you know, committee. Uh, you know, there's the Omnion in various areas, the sort of internal sort of, you know, it looks it operates like the SS, you know, in, you know, German Nazism, you know, cracking down on dissent and everything. You know, there hasn't been a real uh, sort of bottom-up analysis of this stuff in a long time that we can see publicly. I think, you know, some of my friends inside government will say, well, no, it's gotten better and we've done, we now have there's more agreement about what this looks like. I hope that's true. Um, you know, it's obviously stuff I'm not privy to. But, you know, publicly, you know, when you see something like the Christopher Miller op-ed from, you know, the Washington Post of last year, it doesn't give us confidence that there's widespread understanding of this stuff when somebody makes such blatantly false remarks about the state of Al-Qaeda, you know? Yeah, and, and look, at um, if the intelligence community is getting a better picture, it's clearly not filtering up to leadership and, you know, it's right. not changing policy. Right, right. So last thing we'll talk about for sort of cutting this one, uh, cutting this over is the State Department delisted the Eastern Turkestan Islamic Movement as a terrorist organization. It was listed, added to the list of designated terrorist organizations, you know, following 9-11. Um, and one of the aliases on that list was the Turkestan Islamic Party, which is what the group has called itself for many years now. It calls itself the Turkestan Islamic Party. And there's this delisting was announced. Secretary Pompeo did it. And you and I both were very curious as to why. You know, we suspect it was policy driven, Um I still think that's the case. I mean, basically, you know, when I go through all this um, and I talk to people, you know, talk to people, you know, what's looming on their in their minds is sort of China's, you know, repression of the Uyghur minority and, you know, various ethnic minorities that are, in fact, Muslim. And you can you can listen to what we had to say about that. I think it was episode 20 of the podcast we did a whole episode on how China's repressive policies could fuel the jihad in episode 20. Um, so we're sympathetic, obviously, to the entire human rights argument there on all this stuff. Absolutely. You know, you can go listen to that. You can go what we wrote about uh, we've written about this. However, this also leads to in some highly illogical declarations and highly and, and some other and some other sort of arguments that are just not rooted in fact. And so the State Department decided to delist the ETIM. I got into this a little bit. I talked to a State Department official who told me what the thinking was. And the thinking was. They concluded that ETIM hasn't existed for a decade or more. There's no evidence that it's existed for a decade or more. I said, huh, 
Um, well, that's not true. I mean, you can you can. It's easy to verify the Turkestan Islamic Party's existence. I mean, you know, and the, and the Turkestan Islamic Party is just an alias for ETIM, according to U.S. government. You know, it's just one other way of, of of naming them. And it's been you look at all these designations, you look at all the official correspondence or documents of the U.S. government and the U.K. and others, and it's clear that they've just been referring to the ETIM and TIP as the same group for all these years. So what are you talking about? And so the answer I got was that basically the ETIM uh, is considered a separate group from the TIP. They're two different things, and that when it was, and that the ETIM doesn't exist anymore, and therefore they're they're delisting it, even though the delisting also includes the Turkestan Islamic Party, which they say they admit and they say they concede does exist. Of course it does. And the state, this is the State Department, folks, is uh, aligned or affiliated with Al Qaeda. They don't dispute that, right? So. This all comes down to this game of semantics. I think it's semantics. I don't buy the argument that the ETIM and TIP are wholly separate organizations. I don't think that's true. I'm, I'm always willing to be persuaded of anything, but I don't think that's true. I think you can see some continuity leadership there, uh, for example, across the two, and you can see various other reasons. But now this this whole process has led to the TIP, Turkish Islamic Party, which the State Department recognizes is aligned or affiliated with Al Qaeda, and that's indisputable, folks. I mean, I, I can you know give you an encyclopedia of data on that one. Um, and but that's no longer now listed by the U.S. government as a terrorist organization. So it leads to it's again putting this policy desire. What the what the talking point that I got I've gotten from other folks and from from a lot of different sources was basically they wanted to remove the designation because you know the the, the Chinese the Chinese Communist Party is using it um, is citing the ETIM's presence in you know in Western areas there basically to crack down on the Uyghur population and others. Right. Well, I don't I don't think that. This designation, again, totally sympathetic to the human rights argument and what's going on there. And as we made clear in the podcast and other writings, this small Uyghur, predominantly Uyghur outfit of Al-Qaeda is, is does not represent the vast majority of Uyghurs. It does not condone or justify the Chinese Communist Party's actions at all, at all, zero, right? Does not at all. This is, let's not conflate these two things. But this group exists, right? And it, it is a small group, but it's fighting primarily in Afghanistan and Syria. And it, its ties to its role in Al-Qaeda's network is really indisputable. The State Department doesn't even dispute it. Um, so, but now it's been delisted under this theory, and it is a theory that ETIM and TIP were two separate groups. Now, Bill, we've seen some disconnected dots stuff on this before on the TIP. Um, I'm sure that this, this, this move is going to fuel some of the disconnected dots nonsense that we've seen on the TIP before, you know, there's this, this academic who's got all sorts of bizarre, you know, theories on this stuff that's written about it. Um, some other uh, people who, who think that their, their research has disproven this or that, and it just hasn't. Um, again, the state department doesn't dispute that the TIP exists is operational and is tied to Al Qaeda. What are your thoughts on this? Yeah. I mean, my first thought is, is I just find it humorous that they say, well, they don't use the name anymore. The group doesn't, but the TIP, which they said was an alias does this. I'm going to give an example with Pakistan, right? Lashkari Taiba, right? Everyone knows, well, I'm sure our audience knows who Lashkari Taiba is, right? There's a jihadist group supported by the Pakistani state. They get banned by the Pakistani government after pressure from the United States and the United Nations and India and everyone else. Then they change their name to Jamatu Dawa, right? Then GUD gets, gets banned and they change the name to something else to something else. Now there's like, there's all these iterations and they become these foundations and everyone. Now did the USD list Lashkari uh, Taiba, Jamatu Dawa and all these other groups because they no longer use that name any longer? I, no, of course not, because these are um, TIP is an alias of ETIM. So, so that to me tells me that there's a lot more going on here. And as you, I mean, with you 100%, Tom, I, I suspect this is a, some sort of policy ploy with respect to China. Um, it's frustrating and it's disgusting. I mean, you. If they were going to do this, if they wanted to make the argument that ETI, the Eastern Turkestan Islamic Party or movement, right? Movement, is, movement right. Yeah. Doesn't no longer exist. No longer yeah. exist. Go ahead and delist it. At the same time, re relist the Turkestan Islamic Party. But they didn't. And or, clarify, or clarify the existing designations to say this doesn't apply to ETM because we right. don't. Yeah, we don't think it exists anymore, you know. Yeah. But but those same designations included the Turkish Islamic Party because everybody's understanding until just now was that they were the same thing. They until this yeah. they endorsed this but, theory that they are two different things. You what's know? the where? And I want to see where is the evidence that it doesn't? Shouldn't don't we? Aren't we owed an explanation as to why? 
Well, I don't think we're gonna get an explanation. Right. Anything. I mean, again, there, there are all these. There's some. There's weird theories and stuff on on Twitter and everything about this stuff. But it, it, again, the thing that boils us down to is that first of all, the existence of this group does not justify anything the Chinese Communist Party is doing in Xinjiang. Okay, the State Department should be able to decry China, China's actions without. Um, you know, claiming, you know, sowing confusion, let's say, about Absolutely. what Al Qaeda is doing in the world, right? And, you know, listen, Bashar al Assad um, is the prime monster of Syria. He's the genocidal maniac. He and his allies, uh, Russian and Iranian allies, have killed far more people in Syria than any other party. But nobody disputes that ISIS exists, right? Or has existed in, in Syria. Um, and it's fed off of Assad's crimes. Um, you know, Al-Qaeda has too. And we're not going to get into the whole kerfuffle over Ayatollah al-Sham. You know, that whole thing, that whole that whole chestnut. We're not going to get into that here today. Um, but, you know, it's true that extremists and jihadists have, have uh, you know, basically been able to recruit because of Assad's actions. So, but noting that doesn't actually justify Assad's actions, right? And I don't think, you know, removing this designation, I mean, is it going to change China's behavior? Like, is Absolutely China going to say- not. That's absurd. Right, is the Chinese Communist Party going to say, "Oh well, ETM's no longer designated, so we can't oppress Uyghurs anymore"? No, of course not. They're going to, you know, they don't need this designation to to justify what they're doing in the world, right? And this just shows it just shows, I think, a gross distortion of what's going on here. Now, maybe they would use the designation. The only argument I can see there is maybe, that maybe, and I don't know this is true. I'm just speculating. And maybe it is. Maybe it isn't. I don't know. Uh, maybe they use the designation in the United Nations or elsewhere to say we're just oppressing, we're just combating this terrorist group. Well, in that case, the U.S. It's always to say, no, you're not. You know, you're, you're oppressing civilians. You know, Muslim civilians that have nothing to do with this. You know, and and our tracking doesn't show that the Turkestan Islamic Party or however whatever name you want to give it is is the prime mover of resistance there at all to, to such as it is. Right? I mean, you you can make this argument in a lot of different ways other than playing disconnected dots on Al Qaeda. You know, absolutely, Tom. I, this this uh, amongst other items uh, is the just the. The bastardization and delegitimization of the uh, designation process, which you and I think is uh, believe, or I'll speak for myself, uh, and I'm sure, but I am sure you agree, it, it's very important in defining who our enemies are and taking action to prevent support um, for these groups. Uh, and you know, well, here's another example: the in the in the United, or I'm sorry, in Syria, the United States has supported the YPG. I forget what the, but basically it's it's a uh, the Syrian branch of the PKK or the Kurdistan Workers Party, um, and the U.S. supports it because it fought the Islamic State. But throughout the whole the whole time, the U.S. will not delist the the PKK. Why? I mean, like, so you, in this makes no sense. You know, and when I've brought this up, nobody seems to care because the most important thing is the policy. And that's the problem in all of this. Policy matters and not the facts. ETIM is a terrorist group, even if it, the, even if the Turkish. You just want to call it Turkish Islamic Party, which is what they call themselves. Right. We get it, you know. Fine, we get it, you know. Right? Yeah. So what's the, you know, either it is or it isn't a terrorist group. And if it isn't, explain to us why. The PKK is a terrorist group, and so is its branch inside Syria. And, you know, but the, the expediency of policy is what really matters in, in circles in Washington and not the facts. And I, I think that's what really bothers you and you and me about stories like this. And, you know, let's face it, the, the Turkestan Islamic Party, it doesn't just operate in in Western China. I mean, it has. Well, I don't. I don't. Even, I don't even think. I mean, listen. It's tough to say because you got the CCP is, uh, you know, suppresses all information, so we don't really know everything that's going on inside China. But what's observable to us on the outside, the prime areas of operations yeah. for for uh, the TTP or TIP. I'm sorry, TIP, Turkestan Islamic Party, are not Xinjiang, are actually are in Afghanistan yeah. and Syria and, right? and Pakistan as well. And by the and by the way, yeah, right. And being in Syria, uh, you know. Tell me how that that isn't a global jihadist effort, right? So you're going to tell me that these Uyghurs end up all the way in Syria, and that's not somehow connected to a global jihadist game? Come on. So you know, you know but, so the State Department's going to tell us that the Turkestan Islamic Party, which is operating in Syria, um, in conjunction with Al Qaeda, isn't a terrorist group. Okay. Well, the, well, no, they 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 don't say that. They're just saying that their argument. See, this is where this is, but this is this is the problem right here. Their well, argument the, is my point being, the, Tom. The, the, then why isn't it listed? 
right? Like, but, why but, but, didn't but they I, I understand, but their 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 prop their problem is their argument is the ETIM, which is listed, even though that's this is why this is even worse. The logical contradictions right. here. I know, I know. ETI ETIM, which was listed, and the alias given for it was Turkestan Islamic Party is now delisted, which means the Turkestan Islamic Party is delisted. But the reason they give for that is not that the TIP isn't part of Al Qaeda's network. They admit that they have to admit that, right? It's not obvious. And if you're going to argue against that, then you're an idiot. So I'm not even going to bother with that right now. Okay, um, but ETIM. ETIM is they claim doesn't exist and is, is a separate group anyway from TIP. So this is where it gets all confused now, right? Uh, you know, and in any event, I mean, what's ridiculous about this too is, of course, Abdul Haq al Turkistani, the head of the Turkestan Islamic Party, who we've covered for years. Um, he was designated designated by the Obama administration in 2009. I don't see any evidence that his designated been, designation has been removed, right? Um, guess guess what? When he was designated, he was he was named in that designation as a member of Al Qaeda Shura Council. Oh. Look at that. Now, we weren't surprised about then when we went through Osama bin Laden's files, we found Abdul Haq al-Turkistani's name on bin Laden's ledgers for his monthly payroll. Oh, you know. So, you know, and you, you can you can cite evidence like this. You can cite their own self-identification as part of Al-Qaeda's web, their glorification of 9-11, all sorts of stuff to show what this, what this group is, right? But the bottom line is because of this sort of dance that they've done now on the ETIM and TIP, this, the TIP isn't designated either. Even, even if you want to assume that the two are separate organizations, which I don't, but even if you want to go down that road that they're entirely separate, the, the bottom line is a part of this move now, you have a, a known Al-Qaeda group is no longer part of the designation sort of book that the U.S. government keeps, you know, and it doesn't, it doesn't make any sense. And, and, and as you're saying with the PKK, it introduces uncertainty about the designation process and what it's all about, right? Um, Again, I think there are a number of different ways to do this without a uh, number of ways to criticize and condemn the Chinese Communist Party's actions, which is we do. We condemn them, right? Without playing disconnected dots on what's going on with Al-Qaeda's Uyghur branch, right? Yeah, it's part of this binary thinking almost that, that seems to be prevalent these days. You know, the Chinese are bad, therefore anything the Chinese anything they define as a terrorist is wrong, right? I mean, yeah, we saw this with Chechen, with the Chechen Jihad, right, Tom? And the, and, oh, the Chechen Jihadists. I mean, we had a whole disconnected dot stuff right. there where, you know, I mean, even even when you had it was, you know. I the mean, the Russians a, are lying. They're using this as, they're not, yeah, they're, right. not they're not global jihadists. Meanwhile, uh, Imrat Kavska is, is friggin', they're genuflecting the meanwhile, Al-Qaeda. Meanwhile, jihadists from the Caucasus region <laughs> yeah, going and Chechnya become, become, become major players in ISIS and leading battles. I mean, you know, give me a break. I mean, it's just, but it's just constant disconnect of that stuff because these people get myopically focused on stuff. Again, we're not excusing Putin's actions. You can right. de- decry Putin's actions, but it becomes this bi- binary myopia, right? Where, you know, and again, you know, I, I've said this probably seven times already. I don't care how to say it, Nate, just so you people don't, nobody misunderstands me. None of this, None of it justifies what China is doing uh, in Xinjiang, right? None of it, right? You can go watch the PBS Frontline documentary on this. It's it's bone chilling. Yeah, it's right? terrific. I, I mean, it's, I, it's as close to we have to Orwellian state that you yeah. could possibly imagine. Totally despicable, disgusting. Pick your adjective. Go to your little Google thesaurus or whatever, and and Google a thesaurus and find an adjective that you want to describe it because it, it applies. I mean, it's absolutely horrendous, right? So you can you can absolutely decry that and deplore and 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 say that that is evil that needs to be that needs to be condemned. I don't think the U.S. has many levers for stopping it, but you can say that the, that that needs to be stopped and condemn it without doing this whole dance on this designation. But I think it bought I think that this is bought into some bad arguments on the designations and what they mean and how they work and all that stuff. And you know we have a, a colleague Jonathan Chancer who worked for the Treasury Department in the past um, on designations. We got to have him on the podcast yeah, to talk about stuff. Absolutely, I'd um, love to hear what John's thoughts are on this. Yeah, I mean you know there's a whole there's a whole portfolio on TP. Now again, you know one other point before I close wrap this up. Again, just to be clear, none of we're not saying the TIP, the Turkish Islamic Party, is some sort of you know you know ten you know ten foot ogre you know you know coming toward the U.S. or anything like that. Quite quite the opposite. Not not saying that at all. We're just saying that just talking about basic facts and logic here about what the group is that openly self identifies as part of Al Qaeda's network. We follow its media constantly. There's a whole story, convoluted story on Syria. But even even after all the problems in Syria, they were putting out stuff that was identifying themselves as Al Qaeda. Now you have people who claim that their media doesn't count for some reason and that they've got super secret knowledge. Those people are fools. But uh, in any in any event in any event they're self identifying 
flying as part of Al-Qaeda. You got files recovering Bin Laden's compound. You got other designations, including the one of Abdul Haq. You've got all sorts of observational data you can accumulate here to show what this group is and how it exists, including the TIP's own missives and rhetoric and Al-Qaeda's rhetoric for the TIP. There's a whole thing we covered on all that. Um, the point is, is the Turkestan Islamic Party, the State Department doesn't dispute that it's part of Al-Qaeda's web and that it exists. They're just playing this game now that the ETIM supposedly hasn't existed for 10 years and therefore the designation is uh, removed. Well, and Tom, know, just okay. one quick point. If the Turkestan yep. Islamic Party was the only jihadist group out there, I'd say, all right, time to go get a new job. Let's move on with another. Group. Yeah, exactly. Right? I mean, yeah, it's. I mean, it's, it's 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 but it's it's the fact that there's the TIP and then there's this group and there's that group and there's that group and then you start looking at it and it, you you put it all together and this is what Al Qaeda was fits, made for. It fits into a web. I mean the yes, the point is that Al Qaeda it's, it's yeah Al Qaeda wanted to and still wants to exploit the Uyghur cause for its own purposes. They've had limited limited very very limited, limited very limited success in that regard and we're not overselling that okay. But the point is that that very limited success, right, very limited, right, still is there. And you have to talk about the Turkestan Islamic Party, what it is, right? But you have this myopic obsession where you have to, like, you have people who are, you know, they, they rightfully want to condemn the CCP, but they go down this road of now we have to level all sorts of pseudo exculpatory arguments on behalf of the Turkestan Islamic Party and Big Bad America for designating. I mean, it's just, it's ludicrous. I mean, it's ridiculous. But, you know, now we have a situation where this group, this small group, is no longer sort of uh, you know part of the designation book. So, but again, you know, it, it, this is this is Bill and I cover these stories because we find it interesting. If you if you if you can gather from these podcasts, I hope you understand that part of what we're all about is sort of epistemology and how this stuff works. And you, we're trying to get inside the thinking in Washington elsewhere to the extent we can call it thinking. Right? We're trying to get inside that thinking and, and the and the so called reasoning behind this stuff and show you that a lot of times it doesn't really make all that much sense. People buy into these arguments that sound good because everybody's against what the CCP is doing in Xinjiang, for example. We are right, but that doesn't justify then the, these all these illogically disconnected arguments. But that's it. I think we'll leave it there. We think. Bill, I like think that's week. perfect, Tom. Absolutely all right. perfect. I'll just say one more thing. Actually, I lied. I'll leave one more thing, which is that uh, we do have a recording with H.R. McMaster coming up. Uh, we technical snafu on my end. We're going to get that out. Uh, and we have some other interviews coming up on the podcast. We have some other topics to talk about. Um, again, I hope this is this is a, sort of meant to be a raw sort of unedited forum for Bill and myself to go through our, our work through our little therapeutic session. I hope you guys get a kick out of it. It's meant to be a little bit entertaining. It's meant to be a little bit... Uh, serious but also you know even though it's not cheery topics it'd be a little fun anyway even as we're discussing this dark stuff right Bill? yeah fun for geeks i guess for it's terrorism nerds geeks. nerds Ter- nerds the right nerds we yeah. prefer is nerds not geeks okay. <laughs> That's nerds. right so all right well thank you to the audience for listening to this week's episode of generation jihad please do subscribe to the show as a reminder you can find us on apple Podcasts, spotify youtube or anywhere else you listen to your podcasts and we will see you next week 